Hey, Sports History This Week listeners. Before we get started, I want to let you know that we put this episode together prior to knowing who would play in Super Bowl 57. Now, that's important because you'll be hearing a story about the very first Black quarterback to start and win a Super Bowl. And 35 years later, for the first time, two Black quarterbacks will be starting against each other when the Chiefs' Patrick Mahomes and the Eagles' Jalen Hurts face off in the big game. Stay tuned to learn about the pioneers who paved the way for this to be possible. The History Channel Original Podcast Sports History This Week January 31st, 1988 I'm Kalen Jones. It's a spectacularly beautiful day at Jack Murphy Stadium in San Diego, California. Super Bowl XXII is just moments from kicking off, moments away from history. And the two teams about ready to take the field. And the Redskins, the National Football Conference champions, are coming out onto the football field. The Denver Broncos making their second consecutive Super Bowl appearance. Quarterback John Elway has led the Broncos back to football's biggest stage after falling just short last season. But Denver's all-American-looking superstar isn't the only passer who's drawn attention all week. From Grambling, quarterback, number 17, Doug Williams. Doug Williams. A few years ago, This former first-round pick was out of the NFL, playing in the USFL, the minor league of football. A few months ago, Williams returned to the NFL, but only as Washington's backup QB. But because of an injury, he's named the starter going into the playoffs and has led his team to the Super Bowl. The whole week was all about Washington black quarterback. And my word into that was it wasn't so much about Washington black quarterback. To me, it was about Washington quarterback who just happened to be black. The thing that I concentrated on was trying to find a way to win the football game. When I came out the tunnel, you know, I understood what color I was. In addition to the huge spotlight, Doug Williams wakes up the day before the Super Bowl with excruciating pain in his mouth. He goes to the dentist. It's bad he has to undergo a six-hour root canal. The night before the big game, Williams remembers everything hurting him, even music playing at the resort. That music was going through my ears and just going straight to where I had the root canal. But after a good night's rest, Williams wakes up good to go. And... He suits up for the biggest game of his life. I ain't think about the pain. <laughs> so the Super Bowl overruled the pain. And, uh, you know, it was an opportunity to do something that any quarterback would want to do. But being the first black quarterback was an opportunity that I couldn't afford to miss. After the opening kick, Williams jogs onto the field, fastens his chin strap to his burgundy helmet, and breaks the Washington huddle. He takes the opening snap, becoming the first ever black quarterback to start a Super Bowl. 
but it's the Broncos who get off to a quick start. On their first play, John Elway throws a 56-yard touchdown pass. The next drive, they kick a field goal, jumping out to a 10-0 lead, while Washington can't seem to get off the mat. And then, late in the first quarter, Slipping down is Williams and he gets sacked at the 24-yard line. The play is whistled dead, and Williams might be hurt. Everything was bleak at that particular time. And uh, when I was on the ground, I could remember the uh, trainer coming out, rushed me in. You know, I had my leg stretched out and he attempted to, to put his hand on my knee. And I told him, don't touch me. I said, nope, don't touch me. I said, because if the good Lord let me get up, I'm going to finish this game. And on Washington's first play of the second quarter, Williams wastes no more time. And at that particular time, the ball game was on. Washington's offense roars to life. Behind a powerful line, they pound Denver's defense with running back Timmy Smith. Williams begins carving up the Broncos' secondary. Williams deep for Sanders again, makes the catch at the 10 touchdown. Williams completes pass after pass, four of which are touchdowns. And in 18 plays, we scored 35 points. That's almost unheard of. Washington wins 42 to 10. Williams is voted Super Bowl MVP. Cameras surround him as he walks off the field, raising his helmet to the sky. Today, Doug Williams becomes the first black quarterback to start and win a Super Bowl. An achievement that has paved the way for Super Bowl 57 where two black quarterbacks will face off for the first time in championship history. So, we're asking a roundtable of experts, why have black quarterbacks been a rarity throughout the history of pro football? And, in a conversation with Doug Williams himself, what does it mean to be a pioneer for so many black quarterbacks to come? Selling a little? or a lot. Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real life store stage, all the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage, Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash work. Shopify.com slash work. Today, we're going to explore the history of black quarterbacks in pro football. To discuss the topic, we've organized a roundtable of experts, including Kenneth Shropshire. I'm a professor at the University of Pennsylvania, Professor Emeritus now, Wharton School. Bill Carroll. I'm the assistant director here at Family Legacy Foundation. And Cyrus Mary, Civil rights attorney based in Washington, D.C., and co-founder of the Fritz Pollard Alliance that fights for racial justice in the National Football League. 
Awesome. I'm really excited to get the chat with all three of you. Obviously, Williams' breakthrough represents a pretty significant turning point in NFL history, right? But, you know, you don't have to look too far in football history to understand the sport hasn't always been nearly as accepting. Like, and it's not necessarily a coincidence. That being said, there's been racial discrimination at the quarterback position, you know, since pro football began. And so let's start at the beginning. Why was it so rare to see black quarterbacks for so long within pro football? And what are some of the barriers that have kept black men from maybe rising to football's leading position? I guess, Cyrus, we'll start with you. Well, I think the roots go back to the 1920s when pro football started. One of the pioneering players was Fritz Pollard. He broke all kinds of barriers, and the game was in its infancy. It was mostly a running game. But there was a little bit of passing that he did pass the ball. However, the roots of racism were so deep. America's game, as we call it now, was both a mirror and a bellwether of America. And during that time, we had the Tulsa race riots. And before you knew it, the handful of black players that were in the game, not just Fritz Pollard, but Paul Robinson and others, were essentially kicked out of the game by a gentleman's handshake by the owners. So it wasn't until 1946, generation later, that those barriers were beginning to be broken. I would tout John Wooten back in the 60s. He was Paul Brown's messenger guard bringing in the plays. That started to break down the barriers because then that's a thinking man's kind of position. I would tout uh, Hall of Famer Willie Lanier HBCU grad who was middle linebacker, another thinking person's position, a middle linebacker, quarterback of the defense. So there was a step-by-step breakthroughs made on these positions before we even got to quarterback. There certainly was a parallel universe where there were black quarterbacks at the HBCUs. Like so much of racial history, there was great success going on for blacks in football without white America. Where the difference comes at at the highest level was certainly the participation at the professional level. There was this infancy time where there wasn't this, oh, wait a minute, we can't play with these black players. We can't have black people with this much power taking our positions. We see that at the head coaching position more than probably anywhere else. This idea that I'm going to put a black man in charge of my enterprise and I have all these either conscious or not publicly stated feelings about black people in leadership. Now, the quarterback position, what we've seen is evolution of of necessity. But just as we needed a left tackle that was more mobile, it became clear that, oh, I can have greater success if I have a quarterback who's mobile as well and can evade these new high-speed, highly efficient, strong outside parties that have been coming in and destroying the plays that we had that we used to be able to run in peace. But again, that history is is so much mirrors American society that we can't have black people in these leadership positions. I wanted to touch on Fritz Pollard, who is considered a pretty crucial figure within pro football history. Could you explain who Fritz Pollard was as someone who (laughs) is a part of his organization? Well, Fritz Pollard is a fascinating uh, microcosm of the whole story of the NFL when you look at his personal history. He played um, and grew up in Chicago. 
He was discovered by the Rockefeller family, and they helped him go to Brown University. He shocked the world at Brown University as a black player on an all-white team. He led Brown University to the Rose Bowl. And then when pro football was being started, he gave up dentistry school and was recruited to play for the Akron Pros. He led the Akron Pros to the first pro football championship. And to the owners of the Akron Pros, they actually had the foresight in 1921 to appoint him as head coach. And he goes on for a sensational career. However, because of the abject racism, he's effectively kicked out of the league. Ironically, with the access to capital that he had, he could have been an owner, just like the Hallises. All of it, pro football, American history would be very different if up there with the Mares and the Roonies and the Hallises were the Pollards. He should have been given an opportunity for ownership. But we are talking about the 1920s and 30s with lynching skyrocketing, with all kinds of hatred. Fritz then goes on after being kicked out of pro football to be a spectacular business person in the entertainment world. He's part of the Harlem Renaissance. However, picking up also on the theme Bill was mentioning, discrimination, racism is completely irrational. They left the best talent out of the league but as players, but they left the best talent out of the league as coaches, owners, and front office executives dating back to the 1920s. There are two more historical, I guess, consequential figures in terms of black quarterbacks in pro football that I wanted to talk about with you guys. And that was Marlon Briscoe and Willie Throwers. Kenneth, I'll throw it to you to start. What can you say about Marlon Briscoe or Willie Throwers about who they were and what their legacies are ultimately an impact? Willie Throwers is a guy that we point to as the first one to get on the field. And it's so many nuances. It's sort of like the, the first player to play in the, in the NBA, kind of the long-term debates about who it is. I mean, Marlon Briscoe gets this first start that, that he has this, really this first degree of success. And it's also Marlon Briscoe that is probably our clearest example of a player that can play the position, but is constantly being pushed to play another position and ultimately leaves the Broncos Buffalo, ends up in, in Miami being a, a wide receiver, very successful at that position too. And he's like, I never wanted to play wide. Re- I never played wide receiver. That's not, I'm a quarterback. But because he wanted to play, and, and there were so many quarterbacks after him that finally said, you know, starting with the great Doug Williams, James Harris, and a couple others that said, I'm not going to play something else. And it really took that kind of, I won't move to the back of the bus kind of presence to finally make that transition take place. And if you think about the first ones to have success, I mean, Marlon is more like the kind of quarterback we were talking about a moment ago, mobile, could throw, moved around, but wasn't the traditional statue drop back kind of look of the day. Bill, let's start to you. I mean, what can you say about Briscoe and Willie Thrower? They didn't fit the physical profile that a lot of people had in mind. Thoreau was 5'11", and Marlon Briscoe was 5'10". Both of them had long arms and big hands, and that matters if you're going to play quarterback, right? And when he decides to try to play, there's lots of pushback. He only plays basically one game. His career is extremely short, partially for all the things you just talked about, but 
could he have played in the NFL? And especially if they'd spent some time trying to develop him, I, I feel very surely. And then we just talked about the magician, right? Marlon Briscoe. People see he can throw the ball well. He moves incredibly well. He's decisive and he's smart. And once again, how different is the history of everything if he doesn't get moved around, right? In fact, he's outplaying Dennis Shaw. He's outplaying, you know, some of his white counterparts. I mean, it's not like it was, but there's still questions that they ask black quarterbacks in their interview rooms that are meant to sort of suss out how well they think the game in a way that they don't ask white quarterbacks. Still, the term I use when I talk to scouts is I call it mental picture scouting because this person has a picture, mental picture of a NFL quarterback. You still have these extra questions you want to ask. And I hopefully we'll see that change then. I guess through the 70s, before we get to Doug Williams, who were some of the other figures or quarterbacks through that era that maybe helped us get to Doug Williams becoming a starting quarterback? It's Shaq Harris, for sure. I mean, there, there were a you know, smattering of others got opportunities. And I think in college, too, I mean, you know, the great Tony Dungy was playing quarterback in college. But Shaq, I, I grew up in Los Angeles and I actually grew up with to. Dorsey High School and Shaq would come, you know, on off days. But just the idea of seeing the success that he could have. I remember so much what even as a kid I knew was mistreatment and a lack of respect for the success that he was having. The idea that he takes a team so far, then all of a sudden he's not the guy. It was almost, okay, we had to do this. But as soon as we get the traditional white quarterback, uh, back, if Jaworski, Pat Hayden, whatever we can do, that's what we're going to do. And so you still, you had this moment of it can happen. And Shaq had, a, uh, and so did, so did Doug, this, this greater degree of mobility than they displayed. In some ways, it, it was this whole, uh, you got to be twice as good and, and you got to do it in the way that it's done. So they were both important. I think what we have today are quarterbacks saying, well, you can do it a different way too. But even with that, as, as Bill was saying with scouts and otherwise, the idea that Lamar Jackson is looked at and said, ah, maybe he should be a wide receiver. I mean, somebody with that much talent at that position to still go to that that old Marlon Briscoe kind of story about you've got to make the transition. I'll, I'll say, too, I was fortunate enough to to play at Stanford with scholarship athlete. And, and the number of guys that we had, if we had eight African-Americans out of 80, seven of them, maybe six, were former quarterbacks. I mean, we had Tony Hill, we had James Lofton, we had, had guys who've been great high school quarterbacks. And without even conversation, they were thinking for a moment about playing quarterback in college. This was in the mid-1970s. They said, I've got to play some other position if I'm going to play professionally. That was the mode. And what we're seeing today, which is is wonderful, some degree of I can do it in the way that that I can do it. Well, that brings us to Doug Williams. <laughs> and I, I guess, Bill, we'll start with you. I do want to ask you, because you're the scout. Uh, I trust your scouting guy. I mean, how good was Doug Williams? What set him apart as far as uh, talent? We talk about Doug Williams, and it was so meaningful for my father. My father, he's born in New York, but grows up in Virginia. And he never rooted for Washington. Why? Because... Who was the owner at the time? A virulent racist, George Preston Marshall. My father's nickname for the team was the White Skins because they were, of course, the last team to integrate. And they did it very slowly. So my father was a Colts fan because the Colts were a very integrated team and had 
black players playing quote unquote thinking man's positions like safety and, you know, guard and center and things like that, which you wouldn't have seen in a million years at Washington. When he sees Doug Williams take the field for this team that as a young man, he had not rooted for because of how incredibly racist the upper management and ownership of the team was, my father wept. I'm not going to lie. My father wept when we watched that game because it was, while we haven't fixed so many of the things that are wrong with our country, it showed that we're pushing the ball down the field at least a little bit, right? Like it meant something had happened when this team that was the whitest team in football for decades as a black quarterback out there. Doug Williams could do everything. He was big, he was strong, he was fast, he was smart. He had a tremendous arm. He was not that different from John Elway. Physically, very similar. Mentally, very similar. Off the charts leadership. If you spent five minutes with the man, you're like, oh, I would follow this man. <laughs> like, what, whatever he says to do, I'm probably going to do it. And of course, Doug Williams is brought in to be a backup, a veteran backup to help, you know, Jay Schrader and all this other stuff. But he's seeing what Doug's doing in practice. And he's like, well, you know, it's practice. You know, and he kind of keeps it in the back of his mind. And finally, Jerry Schrader gets hurt and that's it, right? And once Doug takes the field, it's very clear how different the offense looks, how different the offense moves with Doug out there. He's more decisive. He sees things more quickly. He's more accurate. And unfortunately, you know, he doesn't get a chance to have a long career as a starter the same way he would have if he'd been in a good organization the whole time. Doug's in his early 30s by this point. If, if this happens to him at 26 or 27, what kind of career does he have? We'll never know. I guess for not just him, but black quarterbacks at large, uh, Kenneth, I'll throw it to you. What is the context and meaning of Doug Williams, not only starting in the Super Bowl, but going on to win it? I used to uh, have, have lunch once a week with the great sociologist, Elijah Anderson. He's at Yale now. And he said... Uh, you know, one of the key things for success for African-Americans is exposure. The idea that you, you get a chance to see it. And the idea that on the biggest stage, we all saw Doug Williams being successful. That was the real meme. That, that put such a, a nail in the coffin of so many of the arguments about leadership, about skills. All that was gone. And, and it also was a moment that we moved away from having to rely on, on mythology, too. Doug didn't just lead the team to the Super Bowl, but he thrived in that game. Touchdown after touchdown after touchdown leading to the MVP, which created not only local pride, but national pride. That shining moment that, yes, given the opportunity African-American players can succeed in the ultimate position in the game. So it's hard to overstate the significance of that. Um, but I also want to just quickly say we're, we've not mentioned Warren Moon. And Warren Moon is also a significant figure because he becomes the first black Hall of Famer after first being sent to Canada to play quarterback because he didn't want to go the Marlon Briscoe route of being forced to be a wide receiver or some other position. But I think the Doug Williams and then Warren Moon, that combined really sent powerful messages that we are going to overcome this bias by segregation, by position. As far as where we are today, like I mentioned earlier, you know, a third of the starting quarterbacks in the NFL were black that started the season. How integral 
is Doug Williams and us getting to this point? And I guess how far do we still have to go? Well, I think Doug is an extraordinary person. And I've got the privilege of getting to know him over the years. Uh, But I think that moment is a shining light and creates pride in the African-American community. But I think for all Americans, because it shows that we can be inclusive, that being inclusive leads to success. Being inclusive scores touchdowns and wins championships and Super Bowls. And that's where we need to go as a country is recognizing that. And having that vision of inclusiveness as a country, as a democracy, as an economy, as sport. And I think one of the shining lights is Doug Williams and what he did that day, but who he is as a person. Selling a little or a lot? Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage. All the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash work. Shopify.com slash work. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. In 1988, Doug Williams became the first ever black quarterback to start and win a Super Bowl. Over the years, he's remained with the Washington football organization, now serving as a senior advisor to the commander's president. Well, Doug, thank you for joining us here on Sports History this week. How are you doing? I'm doing well, man. Just uh, survived the end of the season and I just get ready for the next one. <laughs> um. I want to also ask you about like what it was like being a black quarterback in the NFL. I know obviously again, that storyline and that narrative was probably repeated and honestly forced upon you because you were the first one to get into that position. But as far as the history of black quarterbacks, who were some of the guys that maybe you looked up to or whose stories and legends that you heard about that maybe inspired or even paved the way so that you could be in that position? Well, well, you know what? I feel like I'm, I'm blessed. Um, better than most guys at that particular time. You know, I mean, the guys today, uh, they got a lot to look back on and, and, and say that, you know, that they inspired me and what have you. But James Shaq Harris, guy to play with the Rams, you know, just so happened. You know, we both went to Grambling. We both was coached by Eddie Roberts. All the guys that played in the pro, Willie Brown, uh, Willie Davis, Charlie Joyner, Buck Buchanan, all these guys in the Hall of Fame. 
All they ever told me was, if you can block and tackle at Grambling, you can do the same thing in the NFL. And they just told me what, what I had to do as a quarterback, you know, how I had to play the game, my, my proper getting back and sitting up and things like that. That's the only thing they told me about it. And they said, hey, you got everything that you need to be able to play in the National Football League. I knew about the guys before me, like Marlon Briscoe. I knew about the guy that came out the same year I came out was Warren Moon, who had to go to Canada. And then later on, Randall Cunningham. Those guys, I always kept up with those guys. And the guys that are in the league today, man, it's a blessing. For me, it's a special day when I watch those guys play because I know back in the day as, as a black quarterback in the league, uh, the opportunity was not there as openly as it is today when I was there. What sort of barriers did you face throughout your career that maybe weren't typical of other quarterbacks who weren't black? Well, let me say this. I was fortunate enough to play for John McKay. Uh, Coach McKay didn't believe in the color of the skin of an athlete if he could play. So uh, my five years in Tampa was good there. The only thing that I, I felt like I had to deal with more than anything was the surrounding, was the media and uh, the people that was around who really wasn't ready uh, for a black quarterback to be the leader because there was that myth out there that a black quarterback can't win the Super Bowl because he can't lead. Those are the kind of things that, that we had to overcome, that I had to overcome. And I never looked at myself like that. All I looked at myself was give me an opportunity. It all, life is about an opportunity, and, and that's some of the things that a lot of guys don't get. You know, it's, it's the same thing that's happening today in, in the NFL from the coaching standpoint. Give guys an opportunity. You know, you got guys who, who make those decisions for people to say what he can't do, but if you don't give him an opportunity, it won't happen. And the same thing for black quarterbacks. Back in that time, uh, that was a lot of guys before me. I feel like if they had gotten the same opportunity that I had gotten, they don't tell them what would have happened before I got an opportunity to play in, in the Super Bowl. I feel like a lot of guys who came before you or even, you know, after you, a lot of them had the switch positions or scouts were saying, you know, they can't play, like you mentioned, they, they can't lead or they're not thoughtful enough to play the quarterback position. I mean, did you ever experience, you know, people trying to have you play another position or maybe even say that you didn't fit what specific traits lead to being a successful quarterback in the NFL? You know, at Grambling, Coach Rob didn't recruit me to be a, a running back, a, a linebacker, a tight end. And then when I got drafted, I my mind and, and, and my ability was already made up that if it wasn't quarterback, there wasn't no sense of going to the National Football League. You can go and do what you want to do. Go go be a high school coach and live a happy ever after. You know, that was, that was my mentality. So I never had that challenge uh, wanting me to switch position and things like that. So I was lucky in that department. From your personal experience, I mean, what was it like rising through the ranks? Because obviously, like, being in that position, there's only so few and so many, right? Like, I mean, what, what was it like having to compete for a position? And what was it like having to maybe, you know, take a, a different path to get back into the NFL? Well, you know, growing up, I always learned that uh, a talent always rides. When I went to Grambling, there was seven quarterbacks vying for one position. You know, after a year or so, I was able to be that one guy. And in the pros, the same thing. When you get drafted to a team, there are always going to be two or three guys on that team combining for the same job. But but I was drafted in the first round, so I was drafted with the idea that I was going to be the, the quarterback. 
And when I got there, the first game of the season, I ended up being the quarterback. And it just so happened, Joe Gibbs was the uh, assistant coach on, on that my rookie year in Tampa. And Joe Gibbs, the only coach that came to see me when I was at college. And he the one who went back and told Coach McKay that, you know, we want a franchise quarterback. We need to draft the kid from Grandma. So he spent one year in Tampa, and then he left and came up to Washington. So when I left Tampa and went to the USFL and the USFL folded, I only got one phone call. That phone call was from Joe Gibbs, and I'm sure that was from his recollection, what he had learned and stuff about me when I was in Grambling. So he called me to be his backup quarterback. And uh, at the end of the day, I didn't have a job. So when he called and asked me, could I be the backup quarterback? And I told him, I said, hey, Coach, I can be any up you want me to be because I don't have a job. <laughs> so I came to Washington and, and the rest of it history. But I, I give Joe Gibbs all the credit because nobody else called me to come play for them. As far as your value as a, a black quarterback, I feel like the contract disputes a lot of the time. Do you feel like you wouldn't have faced that if your skin color was different? I ain't no problem for me to say this. If, you know, I... I I think I know, and everybody who's around me probably know that if my skin color was different, I, I wouldn't have had a problem getting the contract. As a matter of fact, I probably would be Mayor Tampa right now <laughs> if that was the case. But no, there's no doubt about it that, that the color of my skin had a lot to do with my situation in Tampa. My parents used to tell me, you got to be twice as good you know, the, the get as far, halfway as far, you know what I mean? <laughs> so do you, no, I've, do you, I've always been told, you know, I've been an athlete all my life since I was about six or seven years old. And, and when I got an opportunity to come up here, a lot of people told me, you know, if it's even, you're not going to get an opportunity. But, you know, everybody knows talent when they see it. And at the end of the day, you know, they know when things are not even too. So, so when they make decisions, they based on, you know, a little, you know, we got to make a decision. Now, we made the decision. This is who the guy is. So I understood that you got to be one or two steps ahead in order to get that opportunity. And so that's the thing. So when you win the Super Bowl, I feel like that is a lot of validation for, you know, black people playing quarterback, right? Of being talented enough to be twice good, not only just twice good, but succeed, like lead a football team to a championship. You started seeing quarterbacks, you know, in the era following you, like you mentioned, Warren Moon like the Randall Cunninghams, the Rodney Peets, the Steve McNairs, going into the McNabb, you know, the 2000s, Michael Vick. What does it feel like for you to see how far black quarterbacks in particular have come in large part as a byproduct of what you were able to do? When I was drafted in Tampa, every newspaper article that, that was written about me was either Tampa Bay's black quarterback or Doug Williams, the black quarterback of Tampa. That's how it always started. And in today's time, you, you don't read that. If you're talking about Baltimore, you talk about Lamar Jackson, the quarterback of the, the Ravens. Uh, you talk about Russell Wilson, the quarterback of Denver. Michael Vick, first pick of the Atlanta fact. No color is in there. All the adjectives are gone. No color at all. And I think to me, that was a big change in itself. And giving those guys an opportunity is, is the other big change to, for me. And, and I like that opportunity. How do you think the landscape has shifted today for black quarterbacks in comparison to the 80s? Oh, unbelievable. The ground has tilted. But what we are missing now is keeping the black quarterbacks around as a backup and clipboard and then elevating them to become 
offensive coordinators and coaches. That's the part that we miss. Because when you look around, that's some quarterbacks that are offensive coordinators in this league that was backup during their time. That's the unfair of being a backup quarterback. Because usually during my time and Steve McNair and McNabb and all them, if you was a black quarterback and you was not starting, the chances you being on that team is slim and none. So when when I look at what Geno Smith has done over the last few years, you know, I applaud him because he worked his way back up to to the guy. Is there anything else you can say about just how far black quarterbacks have come in football? And I guess how excited are you to, to see, again, like your sort of legacy really working in real time? Let me say this. I could be wrong, but I think I'm going to probably be more right. I think in the next five to ten years, half of the quarterbacks in the league are going to be black. Coming out this year, the two top quarterbacks – just so happen to be black. Bryce Young and Stroud up at Ohio State. And next year, top quarterback coming out going to be black. So when I look at this thing, I think in the next five to ten years, we can all sit back and, and, and be happy and rejoice about what is transpiring in the National Football League. for listening to sports history this week for moments throughout history that are also worth watching check your local tv listings to find out what's on the history channel today other notable sports stories that happened this week 1943 jake lamata the bronx bull defeats longtime rival sugar ray robinson regarded as one of the best rivalries in boxing 1996 magic johnson returns to the court for the first time since learning he was hiv positive if you want to get in touch, feel free to email us at sportspod at history.com or leave a voicemail at 212-351-0410. We love to hear from our fans and non-fans too. Special thanks to our guest, Kenneth Shropshire, Professor Emeritus at the University of Pennsylvania's Wharton School, Bill Carroll, the Assistant Director at the Family Legacy Foundation, Cyrus Mary civil rights attorney and co-founder of the Fritz Pollard Alliance, and Doug Williams, Super Bowl winning quarterback and senior advisor to the Washington Commander's president. This episode was produced by Cooper McKim, story edited by me, Kalen Jones, and sound designed by Bill Moss. Sports History This Week is also produced by David Ingber. Our associate producers are Emma Fredericks and Hazel May. Our senior producer is Ben Dickstein. Our supervising producer is McKamey Lynn, and our executive producer is Jesse Katz. Don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review Sports History This Week wherever you get your podcasts. And we'll see you next week. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.